How to create a glitch. Integration. This is a summary episode, an amalgamation of content on the subject of integration. Material will be taken from a number of podcasts and synthesized. In this episode, we will be talking about familial cannibalization. To start off, most closed social systems, comprising a functional social unit, such as a family, have a social directive. That social directive demands that certain group members give up some aspect of their personality or identity to maintain group cohesion. In practice, what that means can vary, but the most commonly sought-after qualities are predominantly sexual in nature. Now, social groupings, by virtue of the basic building block of the tonic, dominant relationship, are structured through preferential expectation matching according to archetypal relationships. What this means in practice is that the matriarch or nexus empath of the group manages group assignments and allocations, as well as appropriation. For example, let us say that a family only gathers twice a year. There is a grandmother, a grandfather, three adult children with partners and six grandchildren. The nexus empath or matriarch is the source of ancestral feminine memory and either a tonic or dominant. By using both preferential expectation matching, favoring her partner, and eldest and so on and so forth, she manages the acquisition of qualities pursuant to archetypal fitness. In other words, she preferentially meets the expectations of each family member according to their position within the hierarchy. Now, this assumes however that the partners of the adult children do not play a role, which is untrue. They will competitively expectation match using divisive expectation contracts with other group members to acquire a position of relevance and appropriate for their partner. The point is, families forge hierarchies according to the social directive, existing preferential expectation matching and appropriation. These hierarchies enforce the social directive by limiting lower members from acquiring qualities sought after by the higher. They also appropriate from the lower and redistribute to the higher. The manner by which this all takes place is through divisive expectation contracts and through redirection as set out in the last episode. Now, the process of appropriation frequently involves the communication or assignation of archetypes to lower group members with enforcement by way of divisive expectations contracts. This occurs predominantly in a non-consensual space, which family gatherings frequently are. Thus, substitution and displacement, union, mirroring, polarity and conservation all play a role in this process. In such a gathering it is important to note body language, dominance with respect to territory or objects and mirroring to ascertain how the dialogue is progressing and who is managing gateways. As well as spatial non-consensuality, that is territoriality. In this episode, we will be talking about the restoration of continuity, a state we will call integration. The state by which our consensuality is enmeshed in the conjoined consensuality of others is one in which we preferentially expectation match others over ourselves. In this state, our reactive emotionality is expressed instantaneously through the emotional intonation of the plates of meaning. In other words, if we experience some reactive frustration, the result of someone responding with orthogonal thought, that is, sending us tension independently of the appropriation of some impulse, then that tension is immediately expressed through the emotional emphasis of our conscious action. That is to say, there is a bifurcation of our self, duality, 
created by when we preferentially expectation match some other, over meeting our own expectations pursuant to our consensuality. Thus, the tonic-dominant relationship, by creating a situation where we preferentially expectation match some other, over the self, creates the shadow self as part of the tonic-dominant relationship pursuant to the social directive. It is in the linking of our consensuality to others that we possess continuity of expression, tension expressed immediately through each expression. Thus in this integrated state, our reactive thoughts are immediately manifest in tonal changes in vocal emphasis or facial expression changes. The state of integration is also associated with a curtailment of free attention, loss of physical territoriality through which one may induce spatial non-consensuality. It is associated with a calcification of one's expectation field created by its entanglement with the conjoined consensuality of others. Now, the experience of multiplicity, namely the experience of dissonant consensualities is made possible by the overlap between dissonant spaces and our consensuality according to some variable of time. When we are integrated, this overlap is eliminated, the space between our response and action is narrowed by the instantaneous expression of reactive frustration. In other words, the inhibition necessary to create the experience of dissonant consensualities is of a particular type. It is an inhibition created by a lack of continuity between oneself and others. In summary, the tonic-dominant relationship creates preferential expectation matching of the tonic by the dominant, which generates a shadow self. This shadow self is integrated through the instantaneous expression of reactive emotionality, rationalized by the tonic. Integration is the elimination of discontinuity in behavior, which eliminates the space between our reactive emotionality and our consensuality necessary to experience multiplicity or dissonant consensualities. In this episode, we will be talking about the process of appropriation as a mechanism of integration. In general, some individuals exist in dissonant spaces, but firstly, those dissonant spaces do not reflect the reality of others existing in some conjoined consensuality. And secondly, dissonant consensualities rarely become conjoined consensualities. Most frequently, these dissonant consensualities interact with others within the non-consensual space. They are generally resolved through either affirmation of the inhibited impulse, an expression, or the result in a return to negation, which becomes integrated through asynchronicity between oneself and others, dissonance or avoidance. The system processes dissonant consensualities largely through appropriation leading to integration. The mechanism by which this occurs is through the linking of the nexus empath of two isolated closed social systems. In other words, the nexus empath acts as a tonic, sharing some archetype in common with the nexus empath of some disparate closed system, usually the family. The appropriation process, familial cannibalization, thus becomes reflective of a larger system-wide appropriation. The nexus empath of the family acts as a stand-in through acting as the tonic according to some archetypal link with some parallel societal authority figure. In appropriation and later gatekeeping, the offending person goes through phases of familial cannibalization, appropriation, integration and gatekeeping. These four phases, familial cannibalization, appropriation, 
integration and gatekeeping describe the four stages by which dissonant worldviews are dissolved by the system as the conjoined consensual system protects itself. The success of the process or four phases really depends upon the object of the process's willingness to consent to the conjoined consensuality which supplants his or her dissonant space. Ultimately, you cannot force someone to accept a consensuality, but you can coercively restrict and isolate them in order to compel their submission to the worldview of others. Integration is thus a transient state for some. You can appropriate every divergent orthogonal impulse from some person, you can isolate them through gatekeeping, but you cannot compel them to consent to a conjoined consensuality. In the end, the state of integration will only remain so long as one reacts affirmatively to the attributions provided by the non-dissonant space. In rejection, comes asynchronicity, which at some point generates a level of dissonance fruitful for the generation of orthogonal thought. In this episode, we will be talking about the quality of dispersion, which is an accompaniment of integration, and contrasting it to concentration. In past episodes, we discussed how the state of integration can be produced by familial cannibalization. This was meant to include the manner by which any closed system appropriates and redistributes impulses amongst the group. But there is a quality of the state which involves integration called dispersion, which describes the manner of one's orientation to any closed social system. Dispersion as a quality describes the circumstance where your impulses are dispersed amongst the greatest number of people. As a quality, it describes the manner by which your internal thoughts are immediately paired with those within external minds. This produces reactive emotionality in your mind to these incursions, which preserve the underlying integrated state. As an example, suppose you consensually decide to go out with friends to a restaurant. Suppose, for example, that there are 10 people in this restaurant, and you enter this restaurant in a state where your impulses are concentrated. Your expectation field is focused, that is, you are not in a state of integration. Let's suppose for a second that those 10 people who you interact with have a particular expectation of you. Those expectations of you represent the conjoined consensuality. Through the interplay of tonic dominant exchanges, postural releases, acquiescence to status, the natural process of fluid interaction results in your consensual participation in that conjoined consensuality. This process represents the deconstruction of your impulses and their redistribution. The process by which this occurs is through the negation of the impulses inconsistent with the expectations of that particular conjoined consensuality, leading to appropriation of said impulses. On the balance, you leave that restaurant in a state of integration. Your impulses are dispersed amongst the group and your being is stretched thin. Your internal mind can offer only limited space with which to construct and reorient ideas, restricted by the expectations and reactive emotionality of those with whom you participated in a conjoined consensuality. In this example, what is reactive emotionality? Reactive emotionality are dialectical thoughts projected or inducted internally, whereas in multiplicity we see that others play to the hands will display a dialectical reaction to our internal thoughts. In integration, our internal thoughts generate dialectical reactions internally, which restrict or undermine the development of those thoughts which exceed the expectations of the in-group. Integration, or rather dispersion, is the transposition of multiplicity. 
the flipping of the internal mind, the reversing of one's being, such that one's internal thoughts are restricted internally by the substitution of reactive emotionality of others, dialectical thoughts, for creative space. Now, what creates this dispersion of one's being? The answer is, by common experience, gateways are formed, linkages which produce abduction of another's psyche into our own. These incursions generate reactive emotionality, dialectical thoughts which impugn our thought processes and undermine the continuity of our internal stream of consciousness. Now, this is interesting for another reason. Namely, we explained in recent episodes how in a conversation the other's expressive action represents an intersection of nine classes of parallel universes. To reiterate, when you look at the expressive action of a person, each plate represents a distinct truncated narrative, which when reconstituted represents a full and complete narrative with all the accompanying forms of expressive action. So, to explain this further, if we are talking about the hand language of some conversational partner, in the experience we can observe, assuming they are a dominant, they express a distinct narrative from the vocal language, in the case of hand language, representing some dialectical response to some internal narrative of a given cycle. That means that accompanying that hand language is a corresponding verbal expression, which we don't hear, but rather exists in a nested universe. What this tells us, is that integration represents one end of the spectrum and multiplicity the other. In multiplicity, our conversational partner becomes a manifestation of all, our impulses focused on one individual, concentrated. In integration, we become one with the all, our impulses stretched, dispersed, amongst the other. This movement between these two states is synonymous with the deconstruction of our conjoined self and its resurrection, or reassembly. In the state of integration, the status quo of the other is imposed. In multiplicity, is the destruction of context, the substitution of the other for ourselves. Now, there is a second principle I would like to explore with this podcast. All this structure to reality, is rather like the strands of Indra's net, they are the architecture, but something more fundamental holds them together. In the tonic-dominant relationship, in the interplay between friends, the glue of any conjoined consensuality is a more fundamental principle. It is emotional effulgence, the opening up, and thus, the concentrated non-self of multiplicity becomes the effulgent self of integration through the unfurling, the dispersion, the opening up. The manner of this opening up, this effulgence is the expression of complicity in a negotiated self. A self defined by others. A self constructed with clear limits and boundaries created by the reactive dialectical emotionality which is subducted into the internal mind. This principle, which describes the manner by which a person goes from multiplicity to integration, is a higher principle of the system, an emotional expression which defines the orderly architecture of the net. To return to Indra's net, in multiplicity we can see the individual stones, but the emotional effulgence principle shows us that within each stone is a reflection of all the stones. Understanding multiplicity as the antithesis of integration is possible only when we accept that above all the rules and architecture of the system is the all-in-all principle, exemplified in the emotional effulgence which manifests in the joining of friendship or love. Thus, just as earlier we described how shirking integration results in the death of conjoined self, 
a true death, upon which we travel to a dissonant consensuality, that is we die in another universe, we can see that the return of integration represents the resurrection of conjoined self. This dichotomy, between multiplicity and integration, the continual death and rebirth, is the shadow of the emotional effulgence which animates the creative act represented by the resonance which keeps all beings bound within existence. In this episode, we will be talking about methods of integration, and methods of defying integration. Integration is fundamentally a state in which you meet others' expectations. As part of those expectations, are the expectations created by conventionality, the unspoken rules of a social exchange which dominate where we fix our attention pursuant to social norms. These norms, for example, compel us to make eye contact when we are trying to express ourselves. They require us to make eye contact when we are being spoken to. They arrange all the plates of meaning in a fashion which is amenable to the reciprocity of dialogue. But, beneath this reciprocity, is the intermingling of our expectations in the expectations of another. This intermingling represents the true enmeshing of our mind in the mind of our conversation partner. For example, in the tonic-dominant relationship, the dominance attention is fixed upon the other self-consciously. This self-conscious attention results in the orientation of our verbalization to the expectations of the tonic. Through this unconscious link, we express meaning in a comprehensible fashion to our conversation partner, since their word choice dictates our word choice, since their tone and emphasis, our tone and emphasis. Meaning becomes comprehensible through this link, but it represents a deeper unconscious enmeshing. Through this link we unconsciously rationalize the tonic, giving verbalization to their action, which preserves their emotional stable state. Many of the techniques in both the complete series and in this podcast are reflected in the directive of evading the other's expectations. Because meeting expectations makes you predictable, and it is only in the breaking of patterns that your action possesses information, by violating the predictions of others. Thus, there are some physical objects and alterations which can effectuate this objective. For example, if you are a man, growing a beard can impair the linking of one's facial emphasis to the other, undermining the reciprocity which generates the reality and narratives represented by the plate of the face. But it has an added side effect, namely, undermining the unconscious dialogue which accelerates meaning and generates comprehensible, unitary expression. Likewise, if you are a woman, wearing makeup can have the same effect. All of this is to say that masks have a practical utility which reflects an esoteric significance. By creating a physical and esoteric separation between your face and others, you are undermining the reciprocal connection which undergirds the integration of narratives within the plate of the face. You are limiting the unconscious link which restricts your verbalization to the unconscious actions of some tonic. But socially speaking, these separations are counterintuitive. They undermine the integration of the self through a reciprocal connection undergirded by the unconscious enmeshing of two or more selves through a dialogue. Which is to say, because the plate of the face is the throne of our unconscious link to some tonic, manifesting its integration through alterations of verbalization, it is the plate which we must obscure in order to impact integration. This can be done by violation of basic social norms, such as through eye contact at inappropriate times. 
or it may be obscured directly through objects intended to obscure it such as masks or beards. Conventionality can be used to compel compliance, or compliance can be used to compel conventionality. There is a direct link between basic social conventions of conversation and our integration within the reciprocal expectation matching which produces uniformity. Ultimately, reciprocation is the mechanism of integration, its instigator and generator. And the desire to be understood compels the unconscious negotiation of one's identity far more effectively than one's familial links. Nevertheless, it must be said that the desire to not be understood is a potent advocate in the dismantling of integration. For there is nothing more potent in the defense of individuality than the desire to remain concealed. It is in the concealment of self, the limitation of the others enmeshing with our personality, that we can escape uniformity and experience the bizarre underworld of unconscious multiplicity. Suffice it to say, when conventionality promotes integration, the desire to produce glitches is undermined by the expressiveness of an unshielded face. For only in acting against conventionality, will one escape the basic expectations of mutuality which correct impulses which escape the expectation field of the common mind. Fundamentally, Creating a glitch is about defying conventionality, acting without expectation, defeating expectation, breaking the patterns that define us, created by the entangling of our unconscious in the bonded reciprocation of others' limitation. If you do not learn to bend the rules of conventionality, altering attention, undermining expression, recognizing patterns in the intersections of those around you, you will not see the manifold levels of meaning represented by the variegated plates. In this episode, we will be revisiting familial cannibalization as a path towards integration in light of Season 36 Episode 1. To start out, familial cannibalization was the term used to describe the manner by which families, as the closed social system of a person, a non-consensual space, appropriate impulses according to a social hierarchy created by preferential expectation matching between matriarchs or patriarchs and the corresponding members. In Season 36 Episode 1, we talked about how in order for this to work effectively, the individual members of the social system must have a common genetic heritage of some form. The idea was that once an impulse is appropriated by another family member, the self generates affirmatory impulses corresponding to that quality or behavior in the other, instead of for the self. The machinery of that affirmation is the same as for the underlying impulse, which means that a common genetic foundation is necessary for appropriation to be effective. To rephrase it, first of all, you must imagine a person's mind, the genetic information, as a kind of real estate. In the appropriation of an impulse, the impulse is appropriated by the transposition of its affirmatory nature to the other. In other words, your mind will no longer generate an affirmatory impulse in relation to yourself, with regards to that particular trait, but rather will generate an affirmatory narrative for the other, enhancing their expression of the corresponding impulse. Part and parcel of this, is the recognition that to be effective, appropriation must involve individuals who possess the genotype corresponding to the underlying behavior, but not necessarily its phenotype. In the act of appropriation, the epigenetics of the original generator, will effectuate the behavior, reinforce the behavior in the other. The question becomes, how does this work in practice? 
First of all, the appropriation must be complete, created by preferential expectation matching relative to the matriarch or patriarch who is dominant. This manifests as bonding of the dominant to the individual who is appropriating the impulse, which results in the dominant rationalizing the tonic, appropriator, according to the behavior. Which is to say, that the appropriator receives the reinforcement corresponding to the behavior from the dominant. It is accurate to say that it is the reinforcement that is appropriated as part of familial cannibalization. But more to the point, in the appropriation of the impulse, the original possessor of the impulse, then also generates reactive emotionality which confirms the reinforcement. Which is to say, the originator forms a dominant bond as well relative to the appropriator. Now, to understand the familial cannibalization process, you must imagine this happening for every impulse which is not consistent with the expectations reserved through the conjoined consensuality for that originator. Every impulse is passed off, and the reinforcement is repackaged for another family member, for whom the expectation and reinforcement is provided. Thus, familial units are the most effective manner by which individuals can be reoriented to a conjoined self because they possess a common genetic heritage, which acts as a foundation for the corresponding affirmatory narratives pursuant to gene expression. That's the end of the podcast for today. If you enjoyed it, please like, comment and subscribe.